Levi, and I want to thank your son for leading us in a song as well. And uh, I want to remind everyone that, uh, yeah, and, uh, and uh, did I say something funny? I, I just, you know, anyway, um, no, he, I appreciate it. I appreciate it very much. It, it brought back good memories of being young like that. And they, you know, they just, they would say to us, guys, uh, come up here and lead this song. I don't know music. Don't care. Come up here and lead this song. And we would just would. I want all you know, all of you who are young like that. We need to create more pathways for you to serve and grow. And we will. And we will. You just ask us. And uh, one of the reasons I got into preaching too, when I was um, my my folks didn't go to church when I was a teenager. My uncle and my aunt would take me. And um, and of course, the way you did Wednesday night there was you just had a list in the back and. You know, you put, everyone had to take a shot at doing the Wednesday night devotional. You know, it was like every man's duty. And then somehow the word got around that if, you know, they say, hey, if you ask that, that, that Benjamin kid, you know, and they're like, which one's he? He's the young one. It's not related to any of us. If you ask him to do the, to do the lesson, he'll do it. And so I, they, they would just hand it to me. I didn't know to say no. I didn't know to say it wasn't, you know, my job and you got to do your part. And, and they would start, hey, can you cover this? Yeah, okay. And next thing you know, you know, I'm just, I'm pegged with it. And, uh, and I know they didn't care about quality because it was, you know, it, <laughs> I think they were just glad they didn't have to do it. And so, uh, wow. But, man, I, I want to encourage all the young guys who, who want to do that and, uh, and let's find ways to get our young girls involved in something and, you know, and, and do that too. We just need to encourage all of our young people to be involved in service and ministry. And I want to tell everybody right now, this up here behind this podium or that pulpit or anything, this is like 1% of what ministry in the kingdom looks like. This isn't the end-all, be-all of Christian service. It's just one little part. We often make more out of it, and guys like me make more out of it than we should. The reality is it's the daily grind of living in the world, representing Christ, contacting the people that you have influence over. That's ministry. That's where it counts. And so my job is to inspire us and to inspire myself and to put ourselves under the the word so that we can all live that out. Well, okay, that was bonus material. Um, I want to remind you, this Wednesday night, uh, somebody did hand me the lesson again, and so I'm doing it. But this Wednesday night is the 4th of July, because it's 4th of July, and it's holiday. If you're in town and you choose to assemble with us, we're all going to get together in here at 7 o'clock. If any of the young guys want to lead a song, come bring your song, come bring your prayer, come bring your scripture. We'll do it much as we've done the uh, Wednesday night before Thanksgiving and uh, we're just going to encourage one another for about 30 minutes. And then, um, and then if, if, if it's not just pouring rain on us and you want to join each other and go watch fireworks, hey, let's do it. You know, we can, we can do that. Um, I, I'm going to engage in a study for the next few weeks. Um, and, of course, uh, and of course I, I get this started this one week, and then next Sunday I find out, I've got to be out of town again, and so my, my brother Michael Soto is going to uh, teach this class, and I think you'll enjoy hearing from, from Michael. Uh, I really appreciate the Soto family and the, their contribution to VBS, all of you who contributed to VBS in some way, and uh, it was fantastic, and it was fun, and I'm glad it's over, but it was great, and I mean, it was, I'm kind of, but 
you know it's a success when you've got some of the young guys. One of my big helpers was Adam Jenkins, and um, you know, I've never talked to Adam so much, but he had ideas. And then soon afterwards, he and my sons were like, so next year we're thinking that it's going to be this kind of theme or this kind of theme. And I have to text back some encouragement, but at the same time I'm like, it's too soon. I don't want to talk about it yet. You know, give, a, give, me, a, give me a month and then we can think about it again. But I told Alyssa, I said, that's a mark of success when your young people are already saying, okay, next year we'll do this. Next year we'll do this. That's great. So I want to start on this series, and I've got some, some scriptures that I want to take a look at. And uh, this is a series that's coming together, and I don't even know what to title the series right now, so let's not worry about that. Let's just look at the Word. And I want to ask you to look at uh, Romans 7 with me. Um, the key verse here is Romans seven eighteen. Uh, and I'm going to pull that one verse out of context and just read it. Because th- these are verses that often get taken out of their setting and, and used for different things. And not, and not used negatively. Sometimes they're used for good. I know that uh, 718 for some groups in the, uh, the 12 steps, like the 12 steps of recovery programs like AA, there's groups that want to show that there's a biblical basis to this. This is one of those that they attach to the first step. Romans 7, chapter 7, verse 18. And uh, Paul says, For I know nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That's the English Standard Version. Um, and I'm already quibbling with that translation. Uh, but this is the verse, and, and, and that verse alone, you can, you can come up with a lot of, of um, truthful things, but also a lot of negative things. Uh, that one, one of the ways to read 718 is to say that uh, uh, we're good for nothing. And I think that'd be too harsh of a reading. I know nothing good dwells in me. Well, we're good for nothing. And so you can extend this idea of the absolute depravity of human beings. I wouldn't go that far. I don't think the rest of Scripture will, will, will support that. Because you read in Genesis that uh, we have the image of God stamped in us, that, that God made us in his image. So Paul's talking about a dilemma here. Now, i got to admit right now, and I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm not going to get into this. Because in studying Romans 7, there's this, there's this debate about whether Paul's talking about himself, or is he talking about Adam, or is he talking about the general condition of humankind? Which one is it? Who cares? I mean, really. It, none of that helps me understand this any better. If it does you, then you can enlighten me later. But honestly, on, as far as that debate goes, who cares? This is Scripture as we have it. Here it is right here. Here's Paul saying this statement. Okay, so what does this statement mean? What is he trying to say? Well, I think his, the immediate thought begins in verse 7. Obviously, verse 18 extends in all directions through the whole book. He's, he's making an, an entire, you know, he, he's extending an entire message, a communication, a document to these churches in Rome. And, and these are people that he doesn't know. He's not 
talking to them as intimately as he talks to some because he doesn't know them as well. He's, uh, he's talking about his message and his, his work. And if you look at the end of the book, he's, this, is, this is a fundraising letter in some respects. He's asking them to support him as he continues on his way to Spain and, and continues to share the gospel. But he wants to be clear what it is that the gospel is that he's, um, that he's sharing. And so he's not even trying to deal with fundamental problems like in Corinth. He's, he's, he's in full problem-solving mode when he writes to Corinth. He says, I heard you got this problem. Well, you need to do this. I heard you got this problem. You need to do this. If, if, if Paul were like a physician then in Corinth, he's got a terminal patient that has all these diagnosed diseases, and he's applying treatment. With Rome, it's more like he's talking about general good health and how the human body functions. He's saying, this is what we believe. This is what we know. So he gets into the, the bigger picture. And he's gotten into the bigger picture of grace and law and sin and the way that those interact. Now, one of the reasons that I'm doing this study is because I want to have a better understanding of those churchy theological terms that we throw around rather quickly. Oh, grace and, you know, sin. What are they? What are they exactly? And I hope you'll go on this journey with me and and think it through. And I, I just... And uh, I don't know that I'm going to give you all the answers. I don't know I can do that. But I hope we'll, we'll converse on this together. Um, I think that Paul starts in verse 7 where he's asking a question and he's inviting them to think with him. And notice he has the rhetorical question. What then shall we say? You know, what are we going to say about this? He says, so, so what's it all about? That's, that's, he's, he's opening up a question. And then he offers a wrong conclusion. Are we going to say that the law is sin? You see, with everything that he said previous to that, you could think that, okay, we've got this problem with the law, with uh, you know, the, the law of God, the Mosaic law. We've got this problem that we can't keep it. Uh, we stand condemned by it. And, and you could come to the conclusion then that the Mosaic law and everything about the Mosaic law then is bad. And sometimes we've done that. I mean, I know, you know, we say it's nailed to the cross. But let me tell you, we nail it to the cross. We staple it to the cross. We put, you know, uh, you know screws in there and we glue it. I mean, we, we, we want it all done away with. And we even cut it out of our Bible and don't even pay much attention to it. It's too much. It's there. It's a story. It's our text. It's our word. This was the scripture that Jesus used. This was the scripture that the early church used. We don't need to completely divest ourselves from it. Ten commandments are in there. Boy, during VBS, if you saw Alyssa do the ten commandments with the kids, that that was clever. I mean, the little kids, they got all these, you know, things that they do little, and they do that every morning in children's worship when they go to children's worship and they're learning and and, and those laws are good and i liked it because we were doing it one night and ron was back to, uh, back there and no we had one of the little girls come up and do it she did it for us because i didn't know it yeah that's right i didn't know that how to do i didn't know how to do the ten commandments their way i don't even know that i could have read it off the way they did and then you know they were doing things like don't lie and, and i heard ron below and he's back there he's going that's a good one and i'm like yeah it's a good one god came up with that yeah so we need to rediscover this. Paul's saying, look, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, we're not going to conclude that the law is sin. You cannot equate those two. By no means, he said, yet 
If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. That's one of your Ten Commandments. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. All right. He's saying that the law is good because the law allows me to know what my problem is. It allows me to put a name on it. That without the law, I would not know that I have a problem with coveting with wanting what others have. But here's how sin works. Sin's able to wiggle its way in like a corrupting virus, and it's able to get into the law, and it's able to corrupt that, so that now, instead of using the law to help us overcome coveting, it actually draws us into it. And this is what sin is. Sin is always a corrupting force. It takes what God has made as good and twists it, taints it and corrupts it in some way so that it's just kind of wrong. Um, you know, cancer is in general, you know, the replication of cells using this natural cell growth process, but it goes, it goes awry. It's wrong. Um, Computer viruses are the same kind of code that computers use to do the amazing things that they do, but then it twists it and turns it in another direction. Likewise, sin is that, that force among us. that Sin cannot exist in and of itself. It has to take something good and twist it. And so Paul's trying to define something that in and of itself doesn't exist. You cannot drain our human nature or all of the world of sin and, and draw out of it some you know, substance that then we could do away with it. You're never going to be able to do that because sin is always lying inside the good. So when Paul says, nothing good dwells in me, and again, I'm going to fuss with this, this um, translation. He, he's saying that... that um, He's saying that within him is this nature or this, this tendency. And, and, he's, and he's speaking generically of all of us. I mean, tell us that we don't experience that. You know, this isn't just Paul saying, hey, this is me, not you. Nor do we need to read this and say, well, now that can't be Paul. Paul was not a special, he was a good human being, but he wasn't, he's not, you can't put Paul on the same shelf as Christ, okay? He's not the son of God. Paul wouldn't do that. But he, um, He's saying that, that with, within me, beside me, dwelling within me, is this, is this lack of good, this, this sinful tendency. And he says it comes through the law. Uh, go back to verse 8. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and though it and through it killed me. So the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Sin lies dead apart from the law. Sin is the evil. The law is holy. 
So what's going on here, though, if sin can manipulate and use the law in that way? Well, I think that Paul's reading the Old Testament. So let's go back to Genesis 4. Genesis 4. Genesis 4, we've got our... um, We've got Adam and Eve, our original ancestors, and they have a child named Cain, and then they have another child named Abel. Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain was a worker in the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Both of these young men are coming to worship. They're brothers. They're coming to worship. One makes an offering that God accepts. One makes an offering that God doesn't accept. There's no more explanation as to why, and that's not the point of the story. The point is, one's accepted, one's not. Now, you could look at it as if there's some kind of law at operation there. You need to bring a good gift to God. Why isn't Cain's gift acceptable? Is it because of what it was? Is it because it wasn't the first fruit? Is it because the heart wasn't right? doesn't matter. We have the conflict set up. One's accepted, one's not. It's the response of Cain to that situation that drives the story. Instead of dealing with God, Cain decides to get jealous with his brother or resentful towards his brother. Is there a connection here with Romans 7? Well, I think there is. I also think it's interesting that of all the commandments that Paul could bring up, I mean, why bring up coveting? You know, there's some really juicy ones that he could have brought up. But instead, covet? We're not even sure what covet is half the time, you know. Wish I had a car like my neighbor. Maybe it's the one that, you know, it's the one that you get resentful. You get resentful of what others have and you don't. This seems to be what's operating with Cain. Cain seems to be, and I can't prove that, but I just, you know, throwing that out there as a thought that maybe there is some, in the back of Paul's mind, maybe there is some connection to this story. But this is your original sin between humanity. You know, we we saw how Adam and Eve put their will above God's will, and that created problems. And now Cain has a problem with sin. Here's one of your earliest discussions of sin in Scripture. Cain is angry. His face fell. Odd expression. It just means that he's, he's, he's sad. He's depressed. He's down. He's, you know, he, he's, he's, um, he's resentful. That's a good way to put it. The Lord then speaks to Cain and says, Why are you angry? Why are you resentful? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain's not shut out. It's like, Cain, you have a choice here. You, you know what will you know, make you accepted. You know what to do to do right. So, so do it. It's okay. But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must overcome it. You must rule over it. Hmm. And so God puts to Cain 
the dilemma. He's, it, it's very similar to what you read in Romans 7. And see, when, when you've got a story to attach it to, a drama to attach it to, it makes a little more sense. You've got these real people. And you've got this image of sin as this corrupting force that's just waiting at his door, ready to pounce on him. Cain, you've got a choice. And if he doesn't overcome it, it's going to take his anger, his resentment, and it's going to turn it over into something destructive. And that is what happens. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. There's consequences to what Cain does. You know, there's some question here did Cain want to do this? What was he motivated by? We could say he was motivated by his anger, by his passion. Genesis 4 is going to say it was sin. Cain gave in to the sin that was crouching at his door. Now, there was a law there in that God said, look, do what's right, and you'll be accepted. And yet that conversation with God does not steer Cain away. Is that not somewhat similar to what Paul is saying in 7 when he says, you know, I've got the law and the law is good, but as soon as the law comes to me and I know what's wrong and I know what's right, that's where sin seizes the opportunity just like it's crouching at our door, ready to grab us. Um, You keep going. This is where the problem begins in Genesis 4. If you skip over to Genesis 6 and you read uh, 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Um, well, it's, you know, this is, remember, this is God who, at the beginning of creation, saw all things and spoke all things into being and said it was good and he rested in it. And now he's grieved that he even created humankind. But this, this description of humanity where the thought of our heart is evil continually, this is the problem that God has to to deal with, and then we get into the flood story, and then we get to Abraham, and the story continues. This is the Bible that Paul's reading. These are the texts that Paul knows very well. He understands this scripture. He understands this word of God. So I believe he is working out of this book. And so as he writes this, he's describing this situation that he knows, that he says that we ought to know. Uh, He writes this as if it is a a reality that we're all familiar with. And he's just attaching words to this. that It's like uh, sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment, deceives me, and it kills me. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. But sin is evil. There's a uh, commentator on Romans, a fellow named Paul Ochtemeyer. And he, make, he has a wonderful little illustration in his, in his commentary. He says that um, uh, the, the thing with the law is the law is good and the, and the law is holy. But he says, imagine that the law is a hand puppet. And this is close to me because we just did VBS and so we had our puppets. He goes, if a puppet does something 
outrageous or obscene or says something that he shouldn't say. And uh, we always have to be careful of that in VBS. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, but you can't blame the puppet for that, you know. That would be ridiculous. You know, I, I don't think we should have that puppet back next year. He was rather rude, you know. Um, the puppet doesn't do that. It's the hand controlling the puppet that does that. It's the person behind the puppet that does that. He says sin is like that controlling hand that comes into the puppet of the law and warps it and twists it and uses it in ways it shouldn't be used. Isn't this what the Pharisees did with the law? Isn't this what Paul did with the law during his time as a, as a self-righteous Pharisee? I mean, he was able to justify killing He was able to justify the killing of followers of Christ as God's work. And this is what can be so twisted and sinister about sin working through the law, is that sin's able to use the law in such a way that we actually hurt ourselves and hurt others. And and that's been uh, a real challenge for me in, in my career in preaching, is that I can read you all the rules, and we can all sit here and amen it all day long. I can give all the information and say, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong, this is right. And it's just the rules. It's just law. It's ineffective. That's not to say it's wrong. It's good. It's good to know that. It's good. I I liked what Chris, uh, Chris had to say this morning about the mirror. When the mirror is something that we look into and we see, how sin has deceived us. That is an achievement. Uh, there's one scholar I, I remember, and he said, Look, sin is a theological achievement. And that sounded so strange. I said, What are you talking about? And he said, Well, at that point, you know that you're doing something wrong. And I'd never thought of it that way. Yeah. That when I'm able to say, okay, I've got a problem with self-righteousness, or I've got a problem with gluttony, or I've got a problem with anger, as soon as I name that, I've diagnosed the problem. Paul says that where the law falls short is in being able to give us the cure or the solution or the power. And this is where we get to verse 18 where he says, uh, uh, well, let's, let's back up to 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? No. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Here's sin working through the good law, but instead of bringing life, it brings death. Uh, it produces death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin... And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You have to have a diagnosis. You have to know what you're dealing with. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I don't want to do. That's what I keep on doing. Okay, and this can get twisted, and it can be hard to follow. It is for me. If you don't find it hard, great. 
I find it hard. I, I have to almost have a scorecard to follow Paul on this, and I'm like, okay. And, and, and again, a lot of confusion can come about by, by chopping up everything that he's saying here when I think we need to step back and get the gist of it. And the gist of it is he's saying, look, there's this dilemma that as long as we're relying on the law, our want to may be really strong, but our can-do is weak. That's a very grammatically tortured way to put it. But I think that's better than desire. Uh, And this is where I quibble. Verse 18, I have the desire to do what's right. Okay, desire is a psychological state. It's a craving. Um, There's a lot of things that you can desire that are good or bad. You can desire things that are wrong. How do you know the difference? All right. The problem is with the translation desire. In Greek, the translation is the will. And that will, that word for will, is the same word that's used for the will of God. The law is God's will. It is his intent, his desire, you might say, but not passionate desire. It is his command, his instruction, what he intends, what he wants to do. In this sense, the, the, the idea of the will. The will is what drives us. It's the, it's the, it's the wish, even. And um, it's really a noun in this sentence. It's not a verb. He's not saying, I want to do what's good. He says the desire or the intent or the will to do what's right is there with me. He says, that's right there. But what I also find at work in me is that I'm powerless to do that. And this is the conundrum. The law can guide us and point us in the right direction. Imagine it like this. You can have a vehicle that's aimed in the right direction. You can can navigate it. You can target it. You can put it on, um, um, you know, if it's a plane, you can put it, you can put in a course Uh, You you can have all of that aimed the right way. But it's not going anywhere on an empty tank. Because it doesn't have the ability to go. Um, This is what he's saying. We have that there, but instead, in fact, we have our tank fueled up. It gets fueled up with sin and we go the wrong direction. Um, Admitting that powerlessness, that fleshly inability, is not failure. See, we often read this and we say, oh, I feel for, I know exactly what Paul is saying. Yep, just can't ever do what's right. There's just nothing good in this. Oh, I'm good for nothing. Oh, I'll just keep coming to church and maybe God will forgive me when I die. Oh, Lord. Yeah, that's not the life that you and I are called to. We're not called to that kind of hopeless existence. I'm, I'm burdened by the, the, the sorrow and, and the, the hurt of, of, of Christians that I've, I've known over the years. And, and this really stunned me when I was younger. And it, it, it made me concentrate my preaching on, on the grace of God. Not just to make people feel better, but to understand where the power lies. 
Because I would go to people, and, and, and I, I never thought that being a Protestant preacher, I would have to administer last rites. Okay, if you have any background in Catholicism, you know what I'm talking about, if you've seen it. You know, last rites are, hey, look, here's my Protestant interpretation of the last rites. Dear God, this person has no chance, but, you know, hey, just one last deal here. We're going to erase the sin. Come on, God. And, uh, but I would, ha- I, would, I would experience that because I would go to uh, people who were at death's door, and they would say, do you think I'm going to make it into heaven? And I would just I would say, well, how, how can you get to this point in your life? You know, have I done enough? No. Am I good enough? No, you're not. You're, you're Romans 7. You're in a Romans 7 situation. That's what I want to say to them. And, of course, at that moment, you have to be more pastoral than theological. And that, that, that's, that's, a, that's good. That's good to be more pastoral. But, but there is a pastoral and a theological answer. And I think that we need to live with the kind. And by the way, grace does. And this is Paul's already covered this in chapter five. Grace does not become the license for us to do whatever we want. That if we just, you know, if we take the guardrails off and just say, "I got grace. There's nothing I can do wrong. So I'm just going to go do whatever I want. I'll talk down to people. I'll be mean to people. I'll, I'll I'll abuse my body and I'll do whatever I want." Okay, you're still that's that's sin. That's sin at work in you, and it's again, it's 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 wiggling its horrifying, deceptive way into you like a spiritual cancer, like a spiritual virus. And all we've done there is we've just become more in bondage to sin than ever. He says grace actually sets us free from this conundrum. This is why later on in the chapter, and he he kind of gets to it and he sums it up. And he says, um, verse 23, but I see in my members, and he's talking about, not members of the church, he's talking about the parts of his body. I see another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my body. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There's the question. Who can save me? He's got an answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Verse 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. There's your fuel. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul has just opened up now, and because of who Jesus Christ is, and because he's risen from the dead, and God has exalted him, now there is an option that previously was not available. Now there is a different option. There is a third way. There is a power greater than us. This is one of the things they talk about in, in, in recovery when they say, you know, and you hear all this stuff like, uh, you know, step one is admitting that you have a problem. Well, actually, that's not step one. But, you know, for any of us, just every day, yeah, we have to be willing to name the problem. Denial is a tough thing because as long as we deny the sins that are in our life, we don't know what we're up against. 
Cain was in a state of denial. God warned him. He said, that sin's crouching at your door. I don't have a problem with it. Abel's the one that's got a problem. That's how I hear Cain responding to God. When you and I live in that kind of denial and we don't recognize that, we're not open to God's healing. But then when we become open to his healing, we realize that it's not our ability to follow the law or follow the instructions. We don't have that within us, and yet we plug into a different power. We get this connection to this grace where now all of a sudden God's grace is enough. You know, in in Galatians when Paul says that he's asked that God would remove the thorn from his flesh, and we, we ponder so much at what that thorn in Paul's side was. What was it? Was it his poor eyesight? Did he have shingles? You know, what, what, did, you know, did he, uh, did, did he, you know, was he consumed with lust or self-righteousness? Who cares? It doesn't matter. You've got to listen to what he says, you know, that God says no to taking the thorn out, But God says yes by saying, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you more grace so that you have the power not to let that consume you and define you. Now, that is the the real point of what he's saying. We need to quit worrying about what the thorn is and look at what he says about the grace. He says, you know, God's answer to him is, God, take this out. No, I'm not going to fix it. My grace is sufficient for you. God, fix this. No, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm giving you more and more grace. Whatever it was, Paul understood that the grace of God was a greater power than just having it gone. And sometimes that's what we want with our sins. We want our sins to just go away. Jesus, you know, it's... it's I know a lot of you in here have probably seen Old Brother Where Art Thou, and I wish I had the video clip where he's like, you know, all the sins I've committed have been washed away, you know, when he gets baptized, you know. And he says, uh, what about that piggly wiggly that you knocked over? And you, Well, that's been washed away too, you know. I mean, all of it. And that's what we want. We just want it to disappear like it wasn't there. But sometimes what God is doing is he's bringing us in. Through baptism, he's bringing us into a life of grace where he is able to do more in us than what we can imagine. And we live in that humble, joyous state of grace. Now tell me that that won't say to a world that doesn't even know sometimes that sin is sin. Tell me that that won't communicate to them that there's a new life possible that we don't even understand. So I know y'all are, all of us, we're good people. We want to do what's right. And if you find yourself bumping your head constantly up against the wall saying, you know, this this just isn't working. I mean, we keep... Trying and trying and trying. First, remember the old adage that, you know, trying to do the same thing over again and, you know, expecting different results is the definition of insanity. And then I want you to remember that sometimes in a spiritual sense, spiritual insanity looks like relying on our own power when God has been saying all along, I can help you and I can give you grace, a power that is beyond your ability. So there are some thoughts on Romans 7. I hope that helps you. I, I, I welcome your thoughts on this. Um, we're going to sing this song that Levi's chosen. And uh, if you need to partake of communion, that's going to be served in, in room 100. And then uh, after that song, we'll be dismissed in prayer. Let's stand and sing.